Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognon Files. Hello. My name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming alive from my den here in the heart of the northwest of England. I'm still completely surrounded by fighting fantasy game books as we continue our exploration of the publishing phenomena that peaked in the 1980s. This part features all the parts that we couldn't quite fit into the other parts and a little more besides. This isn't a supplement, it's more of a new game book innovation that doesn't quite catch on. We have another review on iTunes from the Bay Area. Hyperlexic, a long-time listener who once recommended a memorable Chinese restaurant in San Francisco when I visited there a couple of years ago, he says, Lots of old school fun from another country, from me. I really love this podcast. Dirk and the gang focus on the same games that I love from the 1980s. RuneQuest, Stormbringer, Traveller, but from a British perspective versus my Californian one. It's a lot of nostalgic fun to hear the perspective on the games 30 years later, and it's particularly interesting to hear the areas where the experience differed between the two countries. Beyond that, Dirk and the gang are a lot of fun to listen to. Relaxed, funny, down-to-earth, they developed a few standard bits that are already favourites of mine. Looking forward to see where they take it in the future. Thanks, Hyperlexic. So far in this episode, we've spoken to Ian Livingstone about his career in gaming, his role as one of the founders of British role-playing and how Games Workshop was growing and reaching out to new audiences and about the emergence of fighting fantasy as a publishing phenomena and how fighting fantasy system was repackaged as a tabletop game in the form of advanced fighting fantasy the world of Titan, and the creatures from out of the pit. This time, we're looking more closely at the game books themselves. Sure, we all know the Warlock of the Firetop Mountain, Death Trap Dungeon, and the Forest of Doom, but what about the rest of the 80 or so titles that were produced, not to mention the many offshoots? Tower of Destruction, Legend of the Shadow Watchers, Black Vein Prophecy, Dead of Night, to name but a few of the titles that may seem a little less familiar. I was very keen to speak to Jonathan Green, as he is the fighting fantasy historian, and he joins me in the room of role-playing rambling to look in more detail about how the series developed and about his own experiences in creating game books. I'm joined by Judge Blythe in the Lassagaure in Manchester, feeling suitably refreshed after some fine ales. I've tested his patience over the past episode, as he was never a fan of game books or fighting fantasy. Unlike me, he thought they were a role-playing experience that was lacking something, whereas I always saw them as books that he could experience in a unique way, 
rather than being a suboptimal gaming experience, we look at Warlock magazine that was first published in 1983, a year after the original publication of Warlock of Firetop Mountain. Livingston and Jackson brought their instincts to the game book world that they'd used at Games Workshop. As Ian said, White Dwarf was essential in acting as a focal point for the hobby, so they wanted Warlock to have a similar function for the game book audience. Initially, it was published by Penguin, the book people. Then it was picked up by Games Workshop. We look at issue 11, which was edited by Mark Gascoigne, a former GrubPod alumni. Both Blythe and I were looking at the same edition, but we saw it completely differently. For him, it was a crude, blatant attempt at corporate cross-selling, whereas for me, it had the sensibilities of Dragon Lords, with its cheeky, sometimes incredulously inappropriate humour, and characterful editorial asides from the austere warlock himself. Maybe we were both right. Maybe it was both things at the same time. The mood changes at the end when we have a monster off, a fight between our favourite monsters from out of the pit. I'll be back at the end with some parish notices. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box, the part of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards. And this time, we have the author, game book designer, and fighting fantasy historian, Jonathan Green. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. I normally ask people what was the first role-playing game that they played, but I'm going to ask you a different question. I'm going to ask, how did you get into game books? And can you remember the first experience of playing a game book? I can. Um it's funny, though, because that actually answers your other question as well. How did you first get into role-playing games? I've worked it out because going back, I was 10 years old, almost 11, and I was in Bath with my mum. I think I'd been dragged in clothes shopping to get some new school uniform or new school shoes or something. And then the reward of having put up with that was to go to Waterstones, which is on Milson Street in Bath. And I remember walking in and there was a table and it had this book on it which had a cover unlike any I'd seen before. And it had this very uh, esoteric but atmospheric title, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain. And so I picked it up and flicked through it. And there were these hideous monsters. I remember the picture of the ghoul by Russ Nicholson, ready to leap out of the page, this rotting corpse, ready to claw your face off. And I was hooked. So that was what I bought on that day. It was one of the very first ones. It didn't have a number on the cover. Um, it was literally, it must have just come out, I don't know, days or uh, that, that week or something. Um, and then that was it. I sort of picked them up religiously as soon as they came out after that, or people gave them to me as birthday presents or for Christmas and things like that. So, so were you a gamer or did, did you become a gamer through playing the game books? I became a gamer through playing the game books. Um, I had a, Z, a ZX Spectrum. I had a ZX Spectrum, ZX81, sorry. And I'm trying to think what order I must have been playing on my Spectrum before. I'm trying to remember. Well, there was a similar time when they both came out. But it was after I discovered Fighting Fantasy that I then discovered Dungeons and Dragons. Because uh, I think I must have just gone to secondary school and just discovered Fighting Fantasy. And I remember going on a school trip. It must have been in my second year of secondary school. 
and my friend had got various different, I think, either the companion set or the expert set and just pouring over the rule books on the coach on the way to Holland on some school trip. So, yeah, it was definitely the game books first, then Dungeons and Dragons. What do you think it is about game books that is so appealing and has such a, a appeal to so many fans? Well, I think I was probably the perfect demographic because I was uh, a boy. I was literate, um, but I was also an only child. So I was used to making my own entertainment. So having a game that you played by yourself just made perfect sense and suited me very well. You didn't have to have your friends around or any siblings get roped into playing a game with you. So it's just perfect, the design. And obviously books are incredible anyway because they don't need a power source, unless you have a Kindle, of course, now. Um, But you can take them anywhere. You can backtrack. You can flick forwards. So having that combination and having illustrations which weren't your typical children's book illustrations as well, um, just opened my eyes to this this new world. You went on to create this brilliant book from uh, 2014, You Are the Hero, A History of the Fighting Fantasy Game Books. I've got my copy here. And you have to say that the artwork does take centre stage in the book, doesn't it? So... Yes. Talk about the art and uh, the appeal of the art and some of your favourites. Well, the thing for me about game books is I think because Warlock was illustrated, for me, a game book should always be illustrated. And I know plenty of been published which don't have illustrations or don't have many. But for me, it doesn't quite feel like the real deal, the whole package, if you don't have the artwork. And certainly it was that artwork which grabbed your attention because this is in the early to mid 80s. Video games just didn't compare to that fully painted fantasy art. It was better than films you could see on your grainy TV in the corner of the room, some tiny screen compared to what people have now. So it really was just a thing of joy and beauty to behold. And it was always the artwork which kind of opened the door. They also had evocative titles, but before you got to that point, you'd have seen the cover, stunning pieces of art by people who I now know are were already well-established fantasy artists like Chris Achilleos, but I'd never come across them before. So when you say which are my favourites, I'd have to say Ian McCaig, because obviously he did City of Thieves, Death Trap Dungeon, Island of the Lizard King. Um, He also went on to do uh, the puzzle book with Ian Livingstone, The Casket of Souls, and then that artwork got reused on the covers of the Zagor Chronicles much later on. So those particularly, oh, sorry, and also, of course, Forest of Doom. That was one I think was really special, which had what I realised later was a shape changer in the process of changing from being a goblin. But just the colours of it, the look of the creature, this evocative forest just goes on, feels like forever behind the creature. Uh, But also that kind of autumn sunlight. It wasn't in a dark cave or anything. It was in the middle of the day. So it had a real sense of place and a sense of time, but also timelessness about it. So yeah, um, City of Thieves, which was quite... Uh, designery in a sense in that it took me a while to work out that the city is framed by a Zambar Bones cloak and then obviously the more classic image of the blood beast it's just it's not illustrated inside the book it's the only picture you get of it is on the cover but it's fantastic further down the line I mentioned Chris Achilleos he did the cover for Titan the fighting fantasy world so that's a favorite of mine because it tells a story and it was only later when I met Chris myself that I actually discovered what the story was and the title of the picture is properly called Dragon Spell. And if you look at 
the dragon is breaking into the castle. It's got an earring and things like that. And Chris had imagined that it's a wizard who's turned himself into a dragon to break into the castle. Oh, uh, wow. But, I didn't know yeah. that. That's... But I love the fact that I think you've got a, an injured horse, or at least, or maybe a, a dead horse on the drawbridge, the sort of druid-type priest coming out to defend things. There's just so many characters and stories that you want to know. How did they get to this point? Where are they? What's going to happen next? So that's another favourite. And then obviously... I get a bit biased later on because when you have your own books um, illustrated by incredible artists, it's really something quite special. And for me, that was definitely encapsulated by Curse of the Mummy, which is Martin McKenna's first uh, solo cover for a book, fully painted. And I just thought it was amazing. Yeah, Martin's amazing talent, wasn't he? Um, he, he was a great contributor to... Uh, White Dwarf and to uh, Green and Pleasant Land supplement. When, I didn't realise how young he was at, uh, when he was doing those illustrations. Yeah, his his first fighting fantasy commission, which was Daggers of Darkness, he was 17. And I think by that point, he'd already done some work for Games Workshop. I think that's right. It's certainly around a similar sort of time. And as I say, you make a, a big feature of the artwork in the book. So how did the project come about? Wizard Books, which is an imprint of Icon Books, was still had the licence. And I was saying to them, for the 30th anniversary, we should do something special. You could do like another sorcery where it's several books interlinked. Um, and I was suggesting that we do one going back in time to the War of the Wizards um, in Alansia. And I think I maybe pitched it to begin with as a trilogy with the uh, fall of Carsepolis when it's like the age of chaos. Um, so going back 285 years before uh, the current timeline, as it were. And, and I was suggesting you could play as different, like a warrior, as a wizard, also as a giant and as a dragon. And effectively, um, the editor was saying, you know, all, all good ideas, but you know, possibly too ambitious or more than we want to do. And then I went away and said, well, look, why don't I do a history of the series no because I, I know a bit about it that would be quite interesting and I can't remember the exact order because as well as doing that I ended up writing the history or a, a very brief version of it for SFX magazine and they commissioned it at 2,000 words and trying to write keep it that short proved really hard so I got them to agree to 3,000 and I think what I submitted was seven and a half thousand words and I said uh, I know this is really unprofessional if you don't even want to open it and look at it I will change it and submit 3,000. But they read it and they published the whole thing as part of a fantasy supplement. Having researched that, I realised there was so much more that I didn't know about fighting fantasy and so many more people I could speak to about it. And that was when I started thinking. So, so maybe I did that first. To be honest, it's a bit blurred in my mind now. But I effectively went back to Wizard Books and said, look, why don't we do a coffee table book, full colour, tell the story, lots of artwork, and they said, sounds fantastic, but all your ideas, John, get more expensive. And it's just, no, it's just too expensive. It's too niche. Can't, can't be done. But then a friend of mine said, have you heard about Kickstarter? And I hadn't. And he said, because it's coming to the UK. At the time, one of the first projects when it launched in the UK was Turned to 400, which happened to be a documentary about the history of fighting fantasy. And that was completely separate from myself. I think they wanted £40,000. And unfortunately, they didn't make their target. But they did hit about £15,000. So I thought, there are people out there who would back a project. So I then eventually launched my own, obviously having had 
Stephen Ian's approval. I think I asked for £10,000, but it ended up raising 15000 And that meant I could produce the book that I did and have as much artwork as I did. And it ended up being about 100,000 words long rather than 30,000 words. Yeah, it's, ama- it's amazing as well that you were able to print some of the original manuscripts as well. They, they, were they provided by Ian and Steve? Yes, I was very lucky. There were a couple of times I went around, I remember particularly going around to Ian's house, and he has this incredible office which has um, a life-size figure of Lara Croft in it. At one point I had two. Uh, it's got floor-to-ceiling bookcases with his board game collections. And behind the door, it's about, I don't know, eight feet high, maybe higher. There's this bookcase just with fighting fancy game books in different editions and different languages. He's got cupboards in there. And he was hauling out these kind of file storage boxes and opening it up. And there would just be a piece of paper which had... Uh, the first opening section of um, City of Thieves written on it. So he very kindly let me photograph some of these to include in the book. So they had never been seen before, which made it rather special. What struck me about it is I wasn't aware that so many were produced, you know, because I think my uh, period of uh, dealing with fighting fantasy was probably up to the first 10. I, I, I don't know why that was, but lots of people did, and lots of my school friends did as well. And then they started to trail off. Uh, and then you hear people sort of talking about, well, they picked up 21 because that was Trial of Champions. So that's a sequel to Death Trap Dungeon. And they pick up Crypt of the Sorcerer, which is 26, because that was another Ian book. Oh, 24, of course, was Creature of Havoc, which is legendary. Steve's last published uh, game book, as I recall. They talk about Armies of Death. So anything when Ian or Steve released one, people pick it up. But there were clearly a, a hardcore families who were collecting them because Puffin kept churning them out and kept trying to make it up but yes it did sort of trail off and certainly at one point I think they're publishing one book every two months to keep up the release schedule and then by the time I was contributing to the series it dropped down to sort of three a year there were three slots um but yes I, I guess it's all these things isn't it there's a craze and it's a playground craze and then around the same time Games Workshop distributed Dungeons and Dragons in the UK and Dungeons and Dragons brought out the, the red box set, so it was more accessible to younger readers. So I think people did progress from the game books onto the RPGs. We, we've been talking about that and wondering whether that is as much of a case as we, as we think, because um, you know th- there was thousands and thousands of people uh, playing fighting fantasy, but they ne- didn't necessarily move over into role playing games. Some yeah. did, but not everybody yeah. did. What we've we've observed is that. Game books are a hobby in themselves, aren't they? They, they are. Yes, kind of that's certainly true. And in, in the last few years, partly thanks to things like Kickstarter, um, eBay, also just because the people who were 10 years old when the books came out in the 80s are now in their 40s and 50s, there's that real nostalgia kick like everybody gets when they get to that sort of age. And people who are, who are possibly inspired by those books to move into the careers that they've chosen are then in a position that some uh, control where they can think, well, what's I enjoy so they can have some influence in bringing it back and keeping it alive. So yeah, certainly just with fighting fantasy. I mean, there's there are the hardcore players who love to read the books and will go back to them again and again because they just love them, even if they read them before. There'll be those who try and play through every single one in order completely fairly without cheating. Um, and then there's a complete collector's market as well. And where people are trying to get every single different edition of every single fighting fantasy book. And then once you start opening that kind of worms, then there's 
things like puzzles, board games, uh, Warlock magazine uh, figures. And of course, new things are still being produced that have the Fighting Fantasy brand attached to them. So then that's more things to collect. Yeah, yeah. It, it is quite remarkable, the price that Warlock magazine uh, is going for on eBay. Because uh, yes. uh, as part of this podcast, we're going to talk about any, uh, an issue of uh, Warlock, but trying to get hold of it is quite difficult. I just wanted to uh, pick out a couple of the um, game books from the series, and you've mentioned one that I wanted to talk about, so Creature of Havoc. So for people who don't know that, how, do, how does that work? So Creature of Havoc um, is actually the... The person who's you, the hero, is actually the creature of havoc. You are the monster in that one. That was what made it so unusual. And it starts off, you you don't know anything about yourself, where you come from. And the other interesting thing is you don't really have any control over your actions. So you'll try and make decisions. And then the, the, the creature side of you will take over and do act on instinct alone. And it's only as you start to encounter certain elements, without spoiling the book, where you gain some measure of control where you gain an understanding of language and you can then actually start to take more responsibility for your actions um, until you fight your way through to the end and you discover the truth. It seems that um, Steve Jackson of the authors was always trying to push the boundaries of uh, what was possible within the game books. I mean, even early on with the Starship Traveller, um, it, it, do you think that's the case? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I, I know so, Steve's told me. But, um, yeah. You know, he always he didn't want to just repeat what he'd done before. He always wanted to do something new. So having collaborated on the first one with Ian, he then wrote The Citadel of Chaos, which is your classic, well, I say dungeon crawl, but of course it's set in a castle. So he'd done that. So he kind of done your typical fantasy thing. So the next one he did was Starship Traveler, which was science fiction. After that, it was uh, House of Hell. So it was your horror. Moving on from there, trying to get the order right, he'd... I'm not sure if I've missed one out now, but he did um, Appointment with Fear, which was superheroes. He was a big fan, fan of superheroes. And then Creature of Havoc, which is where you are the monster rather than the typical sword-building hero. So it's the same thing with... Uh, he then went on and wrote the Troll Tooth Wars novel because that was something different. And at some point along the line, he designed the board game, The World of Fire Top Mountain. So he was always interested in doing something differently. He didn't want to just keep doing the same thing over and over. And House of Hell, that was one that attracted a bit of controversy, didn't it, when it came out? Yes, it did. I mean, partly there's the title. In America, I think it was called House of Hades rather than House of Heck. Um, and, but there was a piece of artwork. I mean, the whole thing is it's, it's, it's a satanic cult that you end up getting mixed up in. So you have illustrations of Satanists with goat-headed masks on, or rather goats' heads on. Um, but there was one where there's without giving too many spoilers away, a district nurse has been taken prisoner and is about to be sacrificed. And although you, it didn't show anything explicit because of where robes fell and things, um, she was supposed to be naked. And that was considered a step too far. So I think it, the illustration was adjusted so it looks like she's wearing a robe. Never mind the fact that there's a woman about to be sacrificed by you know, a goat <laughs> mask wearing cultists with a big knife uh, in a children's book. That was fine. And there was organised protests against the, the books as well, wasn't there? I was surprised they to were. read that. Yeah, I think one was the Evangelical Alliance and people, I think there was a, a vicar who threatened to chain himself to the railings outside the publisher's headquarters. There was a, a mum who said that her child had levitated after reading the book 
um, all sorts of strange claims. And of course, Ian tells this story much better than I do. But, but you know, when kids hear, oh, you know, for £1.95, I can learn to fly. I love some of that. <laughs> so, but I, I do remember my, my parents, were, or not necessarily my parents, but people my parents knew were slightly wary about this sort of thing. And my mum was being very defensive and saying, no, but it's good against evil. It's good against evil. Because she thought it's got people reading and it's fiction. So you just need to keep, <laughs> keep your wits about you. Absolutely. And you've touched on it, it, the fantasy novels and the fantasy um, setting of Atlantis. That seems to be the main core of it. But there were other genres um, available as well. Which of those do you like of the um, different uh, like science fiction and uh, alternatives? Yeah. Um, I mean, the science fiction ones, I say, never seem to do that well, but they kept publishing for quite a long time. And there are people who are still very fond of it. I think part of it was none of them, they weren't unified by anything. It wasn't like Games Workshop. We've got, you know, the grim darkness of the future, Warhammer 40,000, it's all the same universe. You've got, obviously, a future set, although it's now the present, um, or pretty much is Freeway Fighter, which is effectively a Mad Max post-apocalyptic dystopian adventure. You've got Appointment with Fear, which although it's superheroes, there's still plenty of science fiction elements to that. But then you've got Starship Traveller, Star Strider, Skylord, uh, Rings of Kether, and none of them, uh, or Rebel Planet, none of them exist in the same universe. So I think that was part of the, the issue, whereas when it was set on Titan, to begin with, it was Alancia. Then you had other continents like the Old World and Cull, but it was still all part of one unified world. And when you got Titan, a fighting fantasy world, it showed you exactly how these places were connected. So I have to say that I was always a fan of the fantasy adventures myself. Um, I, I know that uh, Space Assassin, well, comes in probably for more criticism now than it used to at the time. But I remember in that there were elements of it where it's this huge spaceship and there's kind of felt like anything could exist on board. And I quite like that. And there's a mini game in that which you play of robotic tanks, which is something a bit different again. So do you think that this uh, the world that was created around it is very important? Because you've mentioned that, you know, for your own creations, you were kind of tapping into some of the stuff. Steve and Ian's existed in the same world. And then other guest authors came in and wrote things which weren't so explicitly connected or they possibly had some contradictions but people shouldn't underestimate the importance of Mark Gascoigne who was the consultant editor for a long time but he'd been an employee at Games Workshop and ended up helping uh, Stephen Ian out. Out of the pit the monster manual and Titan Fighting Fantasy World it says edited by Mark Gascoigne but they're actually written by him and he combined elements from the existing books and created new things himself so in the case of the Out of the Pit, he had the monster bin in the game books, but then he had to create, I think there's far more new content in there than there's old content. And the deal was that if you want to say written by him, his name would appear inside. But if you went with the edited title, his name would appear on the cover. And Titan is an amazing piece of work because he took all these random references from all these different books. He managed to make it all fit into one world. So it made, had some sort of uh, logical sense to it. But he also created this whole pantheon of gods and history and myths and races and cities. And it's still a resource that if, if somebody asked me to write a new game book for Fighting Fantasy tomorrow, I would still start by picking up Titan and just look at 
one of the adventure hooks that Mark had left in there that hadn't been pursued yet. So it's an incredible piece of work. Yeah, it is. It is a great. It's a great read, isn't it? It's one of those yeah. uh, setting books that you can sit down and yeah. read, and your imagination catches hold of something and develops it. Absolutely, and it and it then, of course, other guest authors would then made sure that everything fitted within Titan. So it helped bring that cohesion to the whole setup, which was also continued when Mark and Pete Tamlin co-wrote the first edition of Advanced Fighting Fantasy with, with Dungeoneer Black Sand and Alancia, because they expanded on elements that were in Titan and other books themselves in that, and just, again, just added so much more depth to this world. What we've been doing, we've been playing some of the early ones, so um, going back to... Uh, Warlock of Fire Top Mountain, but also looking at some of the newer ones and uh, playing through those. And there's a marked difference, isn't there? The technology, the um, some of the innovations that have come come in into game books are quite striking. Um, yes, um, I think part of it was that you were encouraged when you submitted a book. You had to uh, submit the first quarter completely written. You also had to give your background details of other encounters later on effectively give a plot synopsis but also anything else which would make it and if you had new special rules you had to include that so i think people did look to see how they could make their books different and put a spin on it because obviously your skill stamina and luck and your potions of strength and fortune and skill were, were a classic combination it's amazing how much you could do just with that but people did want to tweak things and, and play with it themselves and a lot of the people who are writing for the series were Games Workshop employees, and they were game designers. So as well as being writers, they wanted to, you know, that was what made it interesting for them. Which of some of the innovations that you've admired and seen adopted well? Because I, I know there's things like uh, leaving codes in, isn't there? So you pick up codes and yeah. then release it. I mean, that, that worked for and against the series because, of course, people who were really sticking with it, they grew up with the series. It's a bit like the Harry Potter books. People started reading when they're age 11, but they finished when they're in their 20s or something. So it's a similar thing. And obviously, as the audience became more mature, equally, people like myself who'd read the books then became writers. And you were trying to write, I think, for the partly the child you had been and also the adult you were now who still enjoyed game books. So using things like codes, rather than just saying, do you have a key or do you have a gold key, which you could cheat at, people wanted to try and make it harder. Um, but of course, that could go too far. And I think some of mine, mine did. So some puzzles became incredibly difficult. I remember there was one in Moonrunner um, by Stephen Hand, which I still don't know the solution. I still don't know how you meant to work it out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so at the time, it's obviously going to be a bit too challenging. But, but yeah, when you put in too many code words or changing words into numbers using a code, it could become a bit laborious. And I'm now of the mind where I do have a bit of that, but rather than thinking I've got to, because by that point I wasn't playing the books fairly myself, I would cheat. So I was trying to beat the cheaters. But of course, what you should really be doing is writing the book for those people who want to play fairly, because otherwise you're not playing fair. And if people want to cheat, really it's a compliment because they're enjoying the story and want to know what happens next. So that's now the approach I, I take. So I try and be... Just, you know, if people want to play it fairly, they can. If they want to just enjoy the story and the adventure and go along for the ride, that's fine too. But yeah, some of the other innovations I liked, another one was Stephen Hand, actually, because I was a big fan of his books. But for Dead of Night, he added the special priestly skills, which, because you're a demon hunter in that, so you can use things like Dark Veil and Trumpet. I think it's things like, 
you can speak the demon tongue and things like this. So those skills, it was like having a possession and they could influence, not just do you have it, therefore you can pass this bit, but it would take you down a different path or give you information you wouldn't have had otherwise. So it was a bit more subtle than just if you've got the gold key, you can go through the door. It could change how you approach the adventure as well. So I, I borrowed that one heavily myself in Knights of Doom, where I had both martial skills and um, sort of arcane skills. And you, you mentioned the writing, and I think that's sometimes undervalued in the books. Very often, it, it what differentiates fighting fancy, I think, from some of the others that are on the market, is the quality of the writing and some of the imagery that it produces. Um, obviously, Ian Livingstone's written loads, but one of the great things about his writing is he's really succinct. But within that, he'll conjure up such a vivid scene with just a few words. It's that real economy. He chooses the words well. And also the thing which always struck me as a child was some of these words I didn't know. It wasn't thinking, oh, this book's for children, therefore we have to use their current vocabulary. It was, here's a book for children. If they enjoy it, they'll get the dictionary out, which is what I did. So it did help improve my own vocabulary. And, and I still, I know there are some writers who say you shouldn't make the reader reach for a thesaurus, but... Um, Personally, I quite like it when I discover a new word. And sometimes within context, you can understand it. This it doesn't break the flow and then you can find out later what it means. But yeah, so Ian was very good at doing that. So keeping it nice and tight, the writing, whilst giving all the information he needed. Also, just with very few words or very little dialogue, he could paint a picture of real different characters he meets, which really brought his books to life. And obviously, there are writers later on who did similar things. Um, I enjoyed Graham Davis's work, although he only wrote uh, Midnight Rogue, the only full book. He also did Rogue Mage, I think for Warlock magazine, but it was reprinted as part of the 10th anniversary yearbook. Possibly adapted by Mark Gascoigne, I think, as well, that one. Um, and then, like I say, Stephen Hand, and when he collaborated with Jim Bambra as well, Paul Mason, all very, very good writers, Keith Phillips. I think they became slightly more verbose as they went on. Mine certainly did. But yeah, if you want to see how to write a terse section or describe a monster, go to Ian Livingstone. Your uh, cover for the book is great. I mean, it must have been uh, great commissioning this uh, piece of art. And you can see uh, some of the vivid villains uh, on display there. Yeah, it's unusual because normally books have the hero on the front, whereas in Fighting Fantasy, they always had the villain or a monster. So yeah, to have all of them looking out at you was great and martin did an amazing job on that you're continuing to uh, write uh, game books i know that you've been busily uh, fulfilling uh, your latest book uh, uh, dracula do, do, to, just tell us about that um that that project obviously well the puffin run finished with one of my books and at that point well after a couple of years i thought that's it there's no more fighting fantasy then I discovered that Wizard Books were uh, republishing the series and doing new titles. And that was when I first myself got in touch with um, Stephen Ian, made contact with them. Because up until that point, I'd spoken to Ian on the phone once when I was Mark Gascoigne's lodger and he was <laughs> wanting to speak to Mark. Um, so I'd never met them. I'd never spoken to them. Um, I believe that when I, my original pitch went off, it would have been shown to them. Um, but then I got to know them myself. So I then started contributing to the series again. And obviously, it's sort of come and go over the years. Um, but in the interim, like I say, some of those people who'd enjoyed books as children were now editors commissioning game books for other properties. So uh, as soon as I discovered they were, I'd always get in touch <laughs> and see if I could contribute. So which is why I've written Doctor Who game books, um, Star Wars game books, 
Um, I collaborated with Mark Gascoigne on a couple of Sonic the Hedgehog ones. So I've always done them and along people know that I write. So I've been approached before I've done stuff at Games Workshop. So I then started thinking, having done uh, Kickstarter with You Are The Here, I started trying for different things. And I thought, well, I could surely produce my own game book for my own series and see what happens there. And it just happened to be, it was going to be the 150th anniversary of the publication of Alice in Wonderland. So I thought, well, by that point, I'd already been inspired by Alice in some of the novels and short stories I'd written. I thought, I'm sure I could turn this into a game book. So it's taking an existing property and giving it my own spin. But then the difference there is obviously lots of the actual imaginary world has been made up for you, but it's working out how to make it work as a game book and people know the plot of the original story. So that then became like the intellectual challenge of that rather than being a wholly creative challenge. It was, how do I make this work? And I took the approach that you are guiding Alice. So it's not you are Alice, but you're guiding Alice. And it starts off very closely to the original book, but then you realise later on that it's diverged quite a lot. You meet various characters you expect to meet, but not necessarily as you would expect to meet them. It proved really popular. So people said, are you going to do a sequel based on Through the Looking Glass? And I thought, well, if you've read Alice, the, um, Alice's Nightmare in Wonderland, you'll know that Through the Looking Glass is included. I've kind of done Alice. And then I thought, well, what else to make a suitable book? And at the time I was teaching and I'd read uh, The Wizard of Oz to my class and I'd never actually read it before. I, I thought I knew the story from the film, but the book has far more in it. And I thought, actually, this could work as well and give it my own sort of diesel punk spin in that case and then it became well what would finish off the trilogy and um alan moore the comic book writer uh, wrote lost girls which features alice um dorothy from oz and also wendy from peter pan so i thought well why not try and do a peter pan story but the idea because that was the hardest one because i thought i'm not really a fan of peter pan i found it all a bit twee but then again when you look into it how captain hook is described you know it's, it's a bit more savage than you might have at first thought. But equally, there's other elements of that which doesn't work for a modern audience. So I thought, what if Neverland itself is the Skull Island from King Kong mm -hmm. and then merge it with Arthur Conan Doyle's The Lost World? So you've then got Peter Pan meets Dinosaurs. And then it worked for me. It was great fun. It's probably one of the ones I've enjoyed writing the most. So by that point, of course, my, my mind was always thinking, well, how many other classic titles can I rework? And I've got a huge list. And it's working out that on average, I'm kind of producing one new one every, every year. Some years it takes longer, but then others, they'll then get two out in one year. But I'm currently writing the seventh, which is Ronin 47, which is the first science fiction one. So it's very different from the others. And what's the process, uh, Jonathan, that you have to go through? So, you know, you come up with the ideas, because normally if you're writing a novel, you'd start with character, wouldn't you, and that kind of thing. Uh, yes. So, so how, how, how does it differ? Obviously, it's changed from Alice in that in all the subsequent stories, you are one of the characters. And either you are a character throughout, um, such as Beowulf, Beowulf Beastlayer, or you can choose a character who's from the original story. So, for example, in um, the Dracula, Curse of the Vampire, that's just come out, you can play as Jonathan Harker, Mina Murray, or Dr. Seward. Or you can play as Count Dracula himself. The difference there is I'll start by going down, going through the book, through sort of a plot breakdown and thinking, you know, what are the beats I need to hit? What are the things I have to include in there? How closely do I want to say to the original book? How much do I want to diverge from it? So something like Twas the Krampus Night Before Christmas is based on 
um, a visit from St Nicholas by Clement Clark Moore, which is obviously, it was the night before Christmas when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. So I then used other Christmas legends and traditions and created very much my own world, but it was still inspired by an existing piece of literature. So it's then really what I do of any game book. It's get, I get my notepad out, I brainstorm scenes, encounters, creatures, but always thinking, keeping it true to the theme. So obviously with Alice, I made it slightly steampunk, so I could have elements of that. With, um, I suppose there's bits of that in Neverland as well, because Peter Powers thinking, well, you know, why would this boy never grow up? Well, what if he's actually a cyborg? So he can't age. He doesn't know how old he'll get. He's effectively the Barnic Man, so he's not going to get any older, but that's why he can also fly because he's got jetpack. Um, so it's all keeping it within that theme and d- does it fit? And sometimes I've dumped stuff because I think that's just goes too far outside bounds. But then something like Ronin 47, although it's inspired by the legend of the 47 Ronin and there are certain names and characters and plot points which are included in the adventure, it's effectively a sci-fi Pacific Rim Godzilla mashup with giant mechs fighting giant kaiju in a post-apocalyptic <laughs> Japan. And is that a project that's live now? Is it? Is that, it can people... Um... So people can place a late pledge via Indiegogo, yes. If you search for Ronin47 on Indiegogo or check it through my website, there's a link. Yeah. So okay. it has funded on Kickstarter, so I can pay the artist and we can produce the book, but people can still place a late pledge and get those same rewards. And... Uh... Next year is a significant anniversary for uh, Fighting Fantasy. And yes, it I is. That, I know that you're involved in the Fighting Fantasy Festival. So is there, uh, are there plans for next year? Or, or Are you not ready to disclose those yet? There are plans. Um, that the, We are fully intending to have Fighting Fantasy Fest 4 in the autumn. Um, we're still trying to finalise a venue and a date. So once we've got those two in place, then we can start to publicise it and let people know what's going to be happening. But we've always got already got a few cool things in place, which we're hoping will come about. Um, and there's also going to be at least one, if not more, publications linked to that anniversary next year too. Excellent. And the spirit of fighting fantasy lives on. It does, yes. Yeah. 40 years later. <laughs> well, thank you very much, John. It's been great speaking to you. Well, thank you very much for having me. Library use! Welcome to the uh, Lassa Gary. The jukebox is on. It's like you're in the room. I've got Blythe with me. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. I am in the room. Yeah, you are in the room. I am. Welcome to the room. It's good to have you. (laughs) I've got a pint. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. In the next 40 minutes. Um, It's uh, the library use segment where we've uh, gone up to the attic and from the archive... I pulled out a magazine for us to look at. Are, are you excited about seeing this one? Because uh, um, it's a fighting fantasy magazine, Warlock. No. No. <laughs> I, I, we'll come on to this, but no. I, I, to be fair, when you said look, look at Warlock, I thought it might be all right, Warlock. Yeah. You might be okay, but I'm not so sure. So Warlock magazine was quite unusual when I saw the first one. I did get the first one. But the first one that came out, was actually a reprint of Warlock of Firetop Mountain. And it also had the first part of the Caverns of the Snow Witch in it. It seemed like a... Like serialised... Yeah, serialised... Serialised adventure. Yeah. What would happen? You open the door, 
buy the next issue. Yeah, see, yeah. You can go down the corridor and carry on or open the door and buy that issue too. Yeah. That way it would work. I think it took you to a point where, yeah, you had to get to this year. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it, it did strike me at the time, who's going to buy this? Because you've got the book. Mm. You can get the book from the bookshop. <laughs> go and get the book, don't, don't buy this. Are, are, they, are they just relying on, on, on the casual magazine browsers? I think so. Put them into it. Yeah. I think so because I know uh, at least two people uh, one of them being uh, Jim Moon mm. Mr Jim Moon of Hypnagoria and uh, Ralph from um, Fictoplasm this was their first experience of fighting fantasy by seeing the magazine right. that was the first yeah. encounter of it was when... the first encounter of role playing yes yeah, so that's oh, it right. and what's striking about it when you look at it now, and it didn't really, I didn't think of this at the time, is obviously you get the Russ Nicholson pictures, but in like an A4 format, so they look yeah. fabulous. And the other thing that makes them look fabulous, because they're so big, but also because they're on a white background. So you normally you get the paperback, and it's like on a, that kind of pulpy paper. Yeah, yeah, it's not, cool. it's not as, the the drawing's not quite as well defined, is it? Yeah. yeah and with Russ Nicholson's yeah. paintings, it's the detail. black, isn't yeah. it? Against the white, so they look amazing. But at the time, I, I, I just couldn't fathom who would be buying this. Yeah. I, I, I bought it because I was enthusiastic. You were a fan, weren't you? Yeah. Who yeah. else would be buying it? Yeah. And uh, the other thing that was in the first one was a competition to create a solo adventure. Did you ever try making a solo adventure? Um, given that I don't like them, no. <laughs> I, I, di I, I didn't really like them, as we've discussed before. As, as these, these last episodes have come out, I've gone from being quite hesitant about not liking fighting fantasy to actually finding quite a lot of other people didn't like them. And that's made <laughs> me feel more confident about saying I don't like them. Yeah. So, no, I didn't. Yeah, that's what's I didn't been... buy it. I didn't buy it. Yeah, you didn't buy it. Yeah. No, I didn't buy it. Yeah. No, I bought it. Well, come on to the competition, but yeah, you've hit on a point there um, that it has struck me doing these episodes. And yes. I thought when we did these episodes, there'd be a whole yeah. residual love amongst the yeah. our RPG community for fighting fantasy. I, and and there, are, there are some people who did. Some people remember them affectionately because that's how it started. Yeah, playing. sure, there are, there are. Well, I remember when we started this, um, we came up to these episodes about fighting fantasy. And I think I said to you privately, I'm a bit worried about this because I don't really like them and I'm worried that there'll be like a lynch mob there'll be a lynch mob coming for me how dare he say he doesn't like fighting fantasy but actually there's a fair amount of people who share my view yeah. which, which amazed me really I thought, I thought I was a bit of an odd one out I thought lots of because they were so popular you kind of yeah. think everyone likes them and it, I, yeah, I have an affection for them I'm not as I've said before, I'm not saying they're dull, but they are dull. But <laughs> I have an affection for them, and I can see their appeal and all that kind of thing. But they're not, they are not for me. No, I feel no. a bit more confident saying that now, because other people have said, <laughs> back me up. <laughs> I'm not saying I haven't got the courage of convictions, but... <laughs> you haven't got the courage. But I haven't got the courage, of, I don't want a lynch mob. <laughs> not another one, anyway. I, I, don't, I don't think necessarily it is that people dislike them. Mm. It's just that it didn't form part of their experience. Yeah, I, I think that's the thing. They're not, they're not for me. They're not for me. They didn't, don't form necessarily form 
they form a part of the experience because you were into them and I did a few of them but they don't form a major part of my experience yeah and as we've said before they come up with the wrong end you're into role playing then the books come along and you think well it's not quite role playing rather than being into the books first and then moving on to role playing yeah yeah when this uh, when this uh, the first one came out of uh, Warlock you had this competition in to create a solo game and then I became fixated with the idea mm. of creating one and it was around the time I was doing my GCSEs and between this and Five Eyes Temple which we were doing at the same time I became a bit I, it took over my thoughts you know it took over my imagination because I had this idea of a seafaring adventure with this group of people called the Bohemians because I was into Queen at the time. So, <laughs> yeah. And the Bohemians were going from island to island, so it was like an island. I thought it was really innovative to go from an island hopping. As so, a, yeah, instead of going up the passage and through the door, which island do you want to go to next? Yeah. yeah. Odysseus. Yeah, precisely. Aegon. Like Aegon before Aegon. Yeah. I was a bit before you John Harper. You were yeah, before John, John Harper. I was there. I was well there. Done. Uh, doing this uh, cycle of stories yeah. where you were uh, uh, adventurers on board this uh, ship uh, called the Bohemian and uh, I spent too much time doing it I had scraps of paper all over it, drawing floor charts <laughs> realise how complicated it was it, it really, it's really co- it is yeah. really complicated and I got myself into like infinite loops and that kind of thing and um, I ended up just abandoning it so Ended up getting no GCSEs and not even winning the competitions. So no, no. Story of my life. But it's, it was quite interesting at the. Gee, uh, did you say GCSEs? Who are you trying to kid? Are you? <laughs> Who are you trying to kid? But yeah. well, all levels. All levels. Well, CSEs. Oh, no GCSEs. I had CSEs before there was the CSEs. But they had GCSEs. There was all levels. There were no GCSEs. <laughs> Lying about. You're trying to give an impression younger than you are. Like somewhere, to be honest. But it was, it was interesting when we, I raised it at the book club, the idea of uh, creating your own solo adventures. Mm. It was interesting how many people had tried it, and yeah. in particular, how they'd um, really, at the early days of uh, computer programming, that was what they would do. They would kind of create interactive stories yeah. using computers. Yeah. And I suppose it's an interesting, yeah, because I remember learning basic programming language and I suppose basic is almost it's almost like the fighting fantasy computer language if then go to yeah yeah. if then go to well that's like fighting fantasy isn't it you yeah. choose this one then go to that one because yeah. we talked before about the Hobbit haven't we the Hobbit um, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, spectrum game you know and I suppose that's an interesting thing isn't it how, how many people we, we tend to think our narrow view of it is fighting fantasy leads to tabletop role-playing. But you do wonder, fighting fantasy leading to computer games. Yeah. Le- yeah. And leading to people designing computer games yeah. rather than tabletop role-playing. Yeah. We, we tend to view it as, well, if you've done Walk Fighting Mountain, surely you will enjoy sitting down with friends doing a role-playing game because it's the same thing. And as we've commented on in previous episodes, that, that wasn't the case, yeah. was it? People didn't, not all of them did that, but to what extent people then moved on to computer gaming 
And so yeah. fighting fantasy is a leap to that. It's, a, it's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe that is it. Maybe the beneficiary of uh, fighting fantasy was the computer games industry rather than rugby. Yes. Yeah. 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 Because yeah. I think that's the problem I got into when I was doing it as an exercise. I wanted to give too many choices to yeah. the reader. Because in a way, it's solo game is, is a programme. It yeah. is like a programme. Yeah, it is. You do this, yeah. you do that, you go there, you go there, you go there, you do that. That's just like a programme, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So the episode, I keep calling it an episode. I said, I said it's like a computer programme, I have to say it, because there's probably quite a few coders listening to this podcast. I don't know anything about a computer programme. <laughs> I'm saying it's like a computer programme. Please don't write in and correct me to say it's nothing like one. It probably isn't like one. But in my imagination, it is. So just leave leave me with that thought. <laughs> yeah. I don't know really what I'm talking about. Yeah. Right? Even, even if you tried correcting it, you, you, I wouldn't understand what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. no, no idea. So, so the episode, the issue that we're looking at is issue eleven, and the reason I've chosen this one. <laughs> there's a couple of reasons I've chosen this one. Uh, it's the one with uh, the Chris Achilles uh, cover uh, that was used on Titan in mm. Puffin Book with the dragon and uh, yeah, it's yeah. clearly yeah. the end of some great, great scene great picture yeah. the dragon walking over the uh, yeah. over the drawbridge and is a, it, it feels like even though there is a battle going on there's some form of negotiation mm. taking place yeah. as though the uh, the dragon's got some hidden intelligence that mm. it's going to be it's a fantastic image that's one one of the reasons but also this was a point where Warlock had been taken over by the editorial team at at White Dwarf and there was a clear moment where the uh, hobby, the game book hobby craze had been established and they were pushing over this crossover of uh, games particularly turning it into a tabletop game because Titan the uh, game world was about to be released and also, the uh, uh, Games Workshop coming out with a number of crossover products as well that they could push through this vehicle, this Warlock magazine that had been established for a period of time. So, what what are the outstanding features? You, you, well, let's pick out a couple of things that uh, you're interested in. Um, I find that quite difficult. I didn't really like it, so I found it slightly depressing. Right. Uh, <laughs> we're 50 episodes in it's not too late for me to get another call is it not too late Rob? <laughs> I tell you, no, I tell you what I found it I think what I did like about it was there was a little advert for Citadel Miniatures Doctor Who Assistance which I've never seen before there's a Sarah Jane miniature there's right. Adric Sarah Jane and Leela oh yeah and you could I would buy I would bought them and melt Adric down <laughs> keep Sarah Jane give Leela to me dad <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was quite interesting. But that's about it. Um, I found it I found it a little bit... How can I put it? I had a Proustian rush. A Proustian Proust- Is it Proustian? Proustian rush. Proustian. 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 Proustian.
the crouching rock. The impression was green cross Watch what, what, what we do when they cross the road. Left and right. Anyway. anyway. Yeah. I think because I, I found it, you know, like, there was a point which, when in the kind of mid to late 80s work, it all got a little bit games workshop corporate and we went off it a bit. Yeah. And it felt a bit like that. It did feel like a very slick corporate magazine that had a very clear agenda and now we've talked about this before haven't we in some of the interviews that you've had people have acknowledged that White Dwarf was always a house magazine so it was a house magazine for a games workshop trying to sell their wares through a magazine but it never quite felt like that because they were just selling products rather than their own stuff whereas I don't know this issue of Warlock I've just found it really disengaging I just thought I'm not interested I'm not interested in this yeah, I'm not interested in it. It seemed like really slick, corporate. What's this got to do with me? And it, it gave me that feeling that I got in the late '80s of thinking the Hobbit is is on its ass and dying a bit. Yeah. Even though it wasn't, we were wrong about that. But it but it felt like that. Yeah. And reading it, I, I didn't, I couldn't warm to it. I apologise, but I couldn't warm to it. So this is this came out in 1986, and it's mm. true to say that we were probably. Drifted, finding our own way through uh, role playing. Well, I think, yeah, by that point, we were kind of doing our own thing and were less. It wasn't that we stopped, but we were doing our own thing and we were less engaged with Games Workshop. Yeah, the new stuff that was coming out. Yeah, we, yeah. We, we See, I, dis- I, d- I disagree with you regarding the uh, corporate element of it because what strikes me about it is, yeah. I mean, you're at a disadvantage because you don't like uh, game books, do you? And this describe that as a disadvantage, do you? <laughs> <laughs> You're a disadvantage. If you don't like, if you don't like, yeah, game yeah, books, there is that, there is that. Yeah. If you don't like game books, for me, this is a fanzine for people who yeah. love game books. And yeah. it, it just, I see what you mean by it being corporate because it does have a lot of the mm. Citadel pushes the Citadel miniatures. There's the heavy metal um, stuff about the, the, the figures and. Yeah, it's got that in. Yeah, it's got yeah. the um, the Shuggy Hall game for um, Judge Dread, and clearly they're pushing Judge Dread at yes. this time to a, a different market. But if you read the actual reviews and um, the articles in it, it feels to me very much like a fancy. It's it's on a dialogue with itself. The the writers. Like in uh, Dragon Mods or something like that, so Mark Gascoigne had uh, edited this, They've, and uh, Jamie Thompson had contributed. They're having a little joke and a little banter, so the warlock is an actual character. Yeah, there's like a letters page. Yeah. Which is, there's a letters page which is interesting, because it talks about, this is that thing about a woman, a woman who says, am I unusual because I play role, play fantasy game books and I'm female. Yeah. And they, 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 they like they say, no, no, not at all. We're open to all comers, but please give us your measurements and your phone number. <laughs> Thinking what? Yeah. What? That's... But of its time, of its time. But but a, a bit of an element of that schoolboy stuff. Yeah, schoolboy humour. Yeah, that was in uh, that was in uh, Dragon Ball. Almost like it's, it, yeah. I, I know. I tell you, point. It's almost like schoolboys who've been told to create a fanzine, but given a massive budget. Yeah. We're given a huge budget they don't know what to do with. So it's very glossy and corporate, well laid out and well designed. But it's still got a sort of school, school boy mentality underneath. Yeah. 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 For, which I, 
which I enjoy. <laughs> and because this is at a particular time of game book development, so like the first, second wave really had passed. Mm. At this point, there were certain innovations coming about. So there were some established titles as well as uh, fighting fantasy. There was the uh, Way of the Tiger, so that, uh, see, that yeah. group of books. And if it, in the reviews it mentioned and, oh, some of the upcoming stuff. They had the uh, one, is it, was it called? Um, okay, let me find it here. Uh, Warbringer. Mm. So Warbringer. And the idea of this is actually you play an individual um, adventurer, but you have the opportunity to be have mass battles and yeah, set the yeah, tactics yeah. of it so pushing the limits of the technology of the books well there's an advert as well in the back that struck me as odd um, for something called the Fate Master books uh, Fortress of the Fire Lord and Treachery of Darkenwood and there's a quote by Paul Colbert that says the nearest thing to real fantasy gaming I've seen oh, what does he talk about yeah. what does he mean <laughs> The nearest thing to real fantasy gaming I have seen. What's that about? <laughs> I don't understand it. I just think, what are you talking about there? The nearest thing to fantasy. What are you on about? It's an advert for stuff. And again, it's like you say, it's these kind of uh, game books are kind of proliferating, aren't they? So you yeah. know, you're getting different people are kind of catching on to it, aren't they? And publishers are going, wow, these Warlock Fantasy Mountain books are selling by the bucket load. So let's get someone to write some of our own. Yeah, but I read that quote, and, I thought, and this 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 perhaps gets to the heart of why I don't like it. The nearest to real fantasy gaming I've seen. What do you mean by? That? I don't know what you mean by that. Yeah. Do you mean do you mean it's like a role playing game? Yeah. But or what is, do you mean? Is, is it, I don't quite. It, is it not accepting? And and this is what is uh, what I find interesting about some of these uh, developments. It's the, uh, the developments in the technology. It's pushing against. The limitations. So we've, you know, mm. last time you had to go a wall up a fight up mountain, and yes, you said to yes. me, "It's so dull because you just got uh, you're going through a dungeon and you've got a series of choices and a corridor." What's happening at this time in '86 uh, is that they're really pushing against that, and you're getting things where actually you can play with two players, so you can yeah, play yeah, with your yeah. friend. And uh, but I suppose work, that's work what. Together. But I suppose that in my in my narrow-minded view is what I find slightly objectionable because I just think just go and play a role-playing game. Why are you bo- why are you bothering with these things for? Why are you, why are you taking these things and trying to stretch them to the limit? Why not just go and do some? Because it's not always game. possible, is it? It's not always possible yeah, to, some to do it. <laughs> Oh, you say that now. Oh, you I say, say that, that now. But me, me and you play RuneQuest. Yeah, I know. That's true. Fair point. <laughs> but, it don't, but, but that's kind of the point. Is it doesn't matter, actually. You could say me and you used to play a lot of RuneQuest one-to-one, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that was still better than a fantasy. That was still better than a fighting fantasy. On I just some, find it... I on just some find occasions. I, on some occasions. Uh, <laughs> Coming out, um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just found it a little bit strange. The whole magazine a bit strange and a bit dis. It just disengaged me a bit. I think you're right. You are right. What they are doing in the magazine is is building up 
I mean, the, the scenario in it, interesting. There's a scenario come Soul Adventure, isn't there? Yeah. That is for fighting fantasy and also basic D&D. So I suppose they are bringing in role-playing games in there. But generally speaking, the whole ethos of the magazine is this is about game books and nothing else. And you're right, it's about pushing the boundaries of game books. So it's not saying there are these things called game books, but you do realise there's these other things called role-playing games that are very similar, but perhaps a bit more open-ended and have mm. presenting more options. Um, but they're not doing that. They're actually saying there are game books, but now there are more sophisticated game books. Yeah. There are game books, as you say, where you can do this, you can do that. And I suppose that's why, from my point of view, for a, for a man who doesn't like game books, it's not, not going to appeal, is it? Because no. I just think, well, don't do that. Don't be selling me that for. I'm not like them in the first place. There, there, there was, there's one moment in this book, that this uh, magazine, that reminded me what, what a big deal it was mm. at this time. Because um, the Lone Wolf series by uh, Joe Dev yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, Gary Chalk, they were epic in scale. I mean, they were similar to uh, Sorcery. Uh, the fighting fantasy uh, series of um, campaign it's a campaign if you like you've taken through this uh, adventure but it mentions there that a television company was in development of putting it as a one-off uh, television program and you, you, you can see that you know it's an IP it's a yeah, it's yeah. a big know, deal yeah. a, a, big, a big deal at that point yeah and I suppose you can understand that maybe you can understand why they did push the idea of game books getting more sophisticated because it was a big audience and perhaps they, they recognised in that audience that there isn't a direct translation from that audience moving them into role-playing games because as we said previously that, that didn't happen did it? It wasn't no. necessarily the case that the million people who buy Warlock of Fight Top Mountain become a million people who play role-playing games and maybe they realised there was a risk in pushing role-playing games because you lose your audience because they weren't interested in it. Yeah. So really, all you had to do was just push more and more sophisticated game books. But for me, as a as a reader of the magazine, I've been forced to read it by you. Um, it just left me cold. Yeah. Because I just thought, why why are you bothering? Why, yeah. why I just felt and I, and it did just did feel like a very corp, very slick corporate read. Of, yeah, we, we're pushing these products, and I know, I know, we've said, I know people will say, well, why do Office House Magazine? Hey, it was, but there was a point where it was pushing different games from different publishers, whereas this felt like it was pushing their own products, and that's just that sense of rereading it, that little tinge of beginning and the end, yeah. beginning and the end of Games Workshop as I knew it. Yeah, and as I loved it, you know. And isn't this this is what's fascinating, isn't it? Because I read it and had a completely different <laughs> Dave, Dave Prosey and Rush. Dave Prosey and Rush, Green Cross Card Rush. Because it, it just made me feel about all of those different things. Because we weren't play we weren't playing as often as we were in no. eighty six, no. and I was picking up these uh, books mm. and enjoying them. No, I didn't. Um, we didn't play face to face at that time. We didn't play it on the tabletop at that time. But those solo adventures, I really bought into them. Mm. I've mentioned before about how uh, really got into uh, sorcery, but also uh, lone wolf. I remember 
just being on holiday and uh, reading those books and just getting into the world and uh, the adventures and the places that it took, took me. I clearly, over the space of these three episodes, I've been, well, I've been flogging a high horse, I think is what they <laughs> Flogging the high horse. <laughs> Bring it in. Bring in the high horse. Bring in the high horse. <laughs> for it needs to be flogged. <laughs> to be flogged again. <laughs> I've not convinced you, have I? No, but I, I think it is, it is as fascinating. They, they do occupy it fascinating and strange position in the world of gaming for that reason that some people love them and other people don't yeah and yet those people who love them and don't like them like role playing games you know what, what yeah. I don't know quite why that is but yeah. interesting I suppose yeah but they're not they're still not really for me when you made me do that you made me do those Gave me I didn't books. make you do you them. Did make, you did to... make you make me do them. You made me you made me do them. <laughs> you did. You put like it's this kind of pressure, isn't it, to do it? Oh, it's what we're going to talk about during my podcast if you don't do them. My, my heart did sink when you gave me those three. I thought, oh no, yeah, oh, God. So they... and I, I, I approached them with, tried to approach them with a degree of enthusiasm, but. Couldn't. <laughs> couldn't. <laughs> so, in the words of uh, Derek the Troll, who does the reviews mm. in these, it's a blah. It's a blah. It's blah from me. And uh, what was it from you? I'm going to give it a little uh, wavy hand because. All right. Oh, because... I see. Oh, I see. Now you've gone from. <laughs> right. Okay. A wavy hand. What? An okay. I just want to keep my ever present. You know, mode of sardonic optimism. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be too enthusiastic about anything, really. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> I'm, quite, I'm quite happy to be unenthusiastic about everything. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this then. Thank <laughs> you. Is this the last episode of Fighting Fantasy? It is, yeah. God for that. <laughs> Are you looking for a D&D podcast with a dark side? Something more like Game of Thrones and less like Monty Python? Tale of the Manticore is part dark fantasy audio drama, part solo D&D RPG. There's no plot armor here. The dice make all the important decisions. Join me as I resurrect the excitement, wonder, and emotion of old-school D&D. Made for a mature audience, Tale of the Manticore is both a fiction and a game. It's the story where chaos rolls. Welcome back to the very depths of the pits of hell. We're in the Lassigari and we're going to have a monster off to end our fighting fantasy season. We're going to have a look at uh, the monsters from out of the pit. And uh, what we're going to do is pitch our monsters against each other uh, to see which is the best monster from out of the pit. Okay, Blythe, have you got your selection of three? I have my selection of three at the ready, yes. Okay, so let's uh, let's open the arena of death and from the vomitorium <laughs> to the left, emerging, <laughs> snorting and making snarling sounds. What is it, Blythe, what is it? I've gone for 
the first of my three monsters is the Gonchong. The Gonchong. The Gonchong. The Gonchong. And uh, uh, it describes the Gonchong. The Gonchong, Gonchong is the Gonchong. Yeah. He's a spider-like creature that, that attaches itself to your head, takes over the brain of, of its victim, making it controlling. So it's like a parasitic monster. The Gonchong. So it could take over the, the brain of an ogre or a troll or a dragon even and make it do its bidding. There's a whiff of... Uh, the reason I picked it, I, I think, as well, uh, back in the day, there's a whiff, uh, the whiff of alien about it. You know, like oh, a yeah. spider. It's not quite a face hugger, but it's got that spidery thing. That, you know, yeah, it's a bit of... You know, I think, I think back in the day, if we'd have played fighting fantasy RPG, we would have, we would have liked that. Yeah. And I suppose that's why it's versatile, isn't it? Because it can control arm of a monster. So in a way, it's like every it's every monster. Yes, yeah. potentially. So p- potentially, you could come across a troll, kill the troll, and the Gong Chong emerge. Is that what you? Well, saying? it could. Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, you could. You could um, encounter some somebody or something that's been controlled by the Gong Chong. Yeah. So it's doing the Gong Chong's bidding, which would add an air of mystery to the adventure. You know, why is a troll a troll or a stupid monster becomes very intelligent? You know, that kind of thing. But equally, yeah, I suppose you could kill the, kill the monster and the Gonchong is freed, tries to grab onto a player and take over a player, yeah. Or the Gonchong could move through a city and become like a serial killer. Yeah, it could. Gonchonging its way Gong through. Gonchonging its way. Why it's called the Gonchong, I just don't know. <laughs> but, but, yeah. But I quite like that. I think it's one of the more unusual monsters in. I, I suppose it, it's interesting because it does something a bit different. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of the monsters, they have fantastic descriptions of the monsters, but actually mechanically they do very little. They just stamina and skill and look and slug it out with them. Whereas this one does kind of do something interesting, I suppose. On the other side of the arena... Gonchong scuttling around looking yeah. for a brain to infect okay. a parasitic attachment. I'm going to drag out from the corner. There's a snarling, there's a snorting, a sniffling sound. And it's the Firefox. The Firefox? Is that a film with Clint Eastwood? It's a fire- and it's a, a, a browser available. And a browser, yeah. An yeah, yeah, to, yeah uh, a browser, yeah. But it's not in either of them. Don't worry. Okay, not at all. It's something else. Coming out is a Firefox. A Firefox is the size of a wolf okay. with um, russet fur. Mm-hmm. Let's see if the Gonchong uh, attacks it. Try attacking the Gonchong. The Gonchong. Try attacking the. Well, it's going to try and attack it. Got it. It's going to it, it scuttles it, over to attach itself it, to the Firefox's brain. Oh, okay. What happened? Bit. One, as soon as it gets wounded, the Firefox erupts into flame. That's what happens to the Firefox. Oh, so what, and dies? No, no, it oh, right. causes flame damage. Oh, right. So it becomes a burning fox. Um, I'd imagine, to be fair, the gun chunks probably are gonna. Because they're not very strong. They're not, they don't have a lot of stamina. Quite puny. So are you saying that the Firefox in this case? Wins. Depends, doesn't it? Depends if the Gonchong gets a gets a good attack, first attack, then it could just kill it the. Could, uh, well, he won't. He won't kill it. He'll just 
attach itself to its head and control it. The Firefox will then be under the mind control of the gunshot. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a draw. We have a Firefox <laughs> control. It's a draw. Controlled by a gun chunk. Together, they walk through. It's a, it's a draw, isn't it? They're one yeah. and the same. They become one and the same. One you get all the Firefox's powers, but the gun chunk is pulling the strings, so to speak. Walking through Kakabad as a <laughs> gun chunk yeah. Firefox. Wow. That's, so that's the first round. First round is draw. Well done. Okay. Okay. Okay, go on. You, you go with yours. Okay. Um, the door slides open. Uh, two burly men with uh, waxed and oiled bodies drag. Frankie goes to Hollywood video. Listen, I'm not that one keen about this. Sure about this. Go on. Drags. Ollie Johnson. He's not in there. A great vat of putrid oil. Swirling around the crowd roar. They know what's coming because it is the infamous Blood Beast. Now, the Blood Beast is famously depicted on the cover of Death Trap Dungeon. Yes. And it occupies this kind of putrid pool of liquid and it's got multiple eyes. But you're going to go and get near it. Now, its vulnerability are two eyes that it's got. If you pierce its two eyes, it's uh, it'll pierce its brain and kill it outright because that makes it vulnerable. However, its face is blistered with these horrific-looking eyes. So you can't pick the right one, so it's going to take some lucky hit to find the correct one. If you get nearer, it's got a spiny tongue. And it's going to wrap itself around you and drag you into its uh, putrid pool. Well, I, 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 the blood beast, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> the crowd were roaring. Go on. Well, I, 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 my second choice is the fetch, a will of the wisp that feeds on magic. Okay. And provokes spellcasters to feed its spells. Is that going to be much good against the blood beast? It's not got any magic, has it? No. No. Um, so what's the will of what's it doing around it? What's well, it's just, I think it's like a, a glowing, glowing object. It's just like a, it's often confused the will of the wisp. It's not a will. It has nothing to do with the will of the wisp, but it's a, yeah. But what it does, it provo- it provokes spellcasters to cast spells, and as you cast a spell at it, it that actually makes it stronger. Feeds, feeds it, feeds it. So what? At what state is it? As it faces the blood beast, what it state as it as it absorbs some spells. Is I think it's absorbed. Lot, I think it's absorbed. Actually, tons of spells. They've been feeding its spells in the dungeons of the arena. Okay. They've been paying the magic users. Every Frank the magic user turns up, zaps some. It's in a cage, obviously, for safety reasons, and he zaps some spells into it. So following the, so it's full. It's full. Full on. It's fully spelled up. It's energy levels top. Right. Okay. To, to the brim. It's bristling, it's bristling. Yeah. The people on the front row, they're getting electrical charges, the hair is standing on end. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so it faces the blood beast. What's it going to do? I don't think it can do that much because the blood beast's not going to cast any spells. So I think, I think it's done for, I think it's done. I think, I I think, think the spiny tongue I think is wrapping around is it. Win. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gone. 
Blood Beast wins. That's one to me. That's one to me. It's not a competition, but I'm winning. It is I'm winning. Okay. Okay. The final right. round. Final round. My final monster is the cockatrice. The cockatrice. Cockatrice. But this is surely the well, uh, thing of legend. He's a pit the cockatrice. In fact, it's really puzzling now with the pit, right? It's the pit. As I've said earlier, they have these great descriptions of monsters, but absolutely sod all when it comes to the mechanics. Yeah. Apart from the cockatrice, cockatrice has hit locations tables. Really? It has hit locations tables. So when you're hit by the, when the cockatrice pecks you, it paralyzes part of your body. Right. And you roll 2d6 to work out which part of your body is paralyzed. And if you roll a two, I think a two is your heart. Instant death. Instant death. Twelve is your head. Instant death. Everything else is like left leg, left arm, up. And I, I read it and I thought, this is odd. Why? This is great. Why have you gone so much trouble with the cockatrice and everything else? This bugger all. So what does it look like? This cockatrice well, in the fighting fantasy. In I think it's like, it's like a little. It's just quite relatively small. Cockerel, cockerel type thing, isn't it? Right. Beak. But it, but it pecks you and para- paralyzes you. So you're a brightly coloured budget, is what you're... Well, I would, no, would you said, a bud, and a budget, like a large chicken. A large chicken, okay. Significant, I'd say a chicken the size of a dog. A chicken, maybe a pe- peacock. A peacock the size of a wolf. I don't think it's tiny, is it? Or is it? Maybe it is. Maybe it's peacock. Think peacock. Pe- think peacock. Peacock. I think it's a peacock. It's a significant chicken... A peacock. significant chicken or peacock. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A kind of chicken that people go, God, that's a big chicken. And people say, it's actually a peacock. But yeah, if it pecks you, you, you have to roll. You have to, make, you have to make a luck roll now, but if you fail, you have to um, roll this hit locations table. Yeah. This is interesting. It's the most, it's the most mechanically, it's one of the most interesting monsters because you think, oh, yeah. Right. So what, what? squawking in the middle of the arena. Yeah, it's squawking around. It, the crowd are looking. Yeah. Who's it a pawn? Is it is a pawn going to be? You've got to tell me, haven't you? It's a pawn going to be the crowd are looking at me. Come in the crowd. And somewhere, there's a tiny, tiny little death spider. Okay. And it's woven a web all around the vomitorium. It's like grey, silky. And it's stood there. It, 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 it's in the middle of this uh, web. It's legs. And it's got. Is it a human face or is it a demonic face? Are you going to come closer? How big is it? It's about the size of my fist. Okay. It's a significant chicken against the size of my fist. Okay, significant chicken. He's got. He's going to come for it and try and pack it. He's going to try and pack it. It's going to get caught in the web, isn't it? Yeah, true. It's going to get dragged to the plains of hell. Are you making this up? You get dragged to the plains of hell when you get stuck in the web, and you just you suffer some penalty on your dice. <laughs> no, that's. that's it doesn't. It don't get dragged to the plains of hell just because you get. It, it does. It does. does. Do you? It does. Do you? Yeah, it does. You brought it with you to prove. I'm gonna look it up when I get home. <laughs> You're making that up. You just get stuck in the webs and get. I'm putting that down as another win for me. Death spider. Death spider. What? So if you get stuck in its web, you get dragged to the plains of hell. Uh, that's what it does. Is that is that really it, what it, it says? It'll attack you and you get dragged to the plains of hell. Another plane of existence, 
you're out of here. You're not making that up. You're out of here, Blythe. If you're making that up, people will know. Let's <laughs> see if it's some kind of charlatan cheating. I've got one up on you. I'm happy though. <laughs> it seems extreme that. Do I get a roll? Does, does the significant chicken get a roll? Uh, not, not in this version. Not in this monster. version. Oh, not in this version. <laughs> right. Well, I think listeners, you'll see. You even miss a games master. That's what you're up against. <laughs> and uh, that's the end of Out in the Pit, and that's the end of our coverage of uh, fighting Great. fantasy. Turn to page 400. Your adventure ends here. Goodbye. I'm Steve, host of All Anthrex's Gaming Vexes, a podcast documenting my ongoing mission to run or at least play all of the RPGs that I seem to be incapable of stopping myself buying. And you'll see me uh, frequently uh, fiddling with something in my hands. Each episode, I get together with a group of fellow gamers that have either played a game I've run or who've GM'd a game for me. We chat through what we've enjoyed about the game and some ways we could have improved the experience whilst making a series of terrible jokes along the way. Was it hot chat action? Sometimes we con game designers who really should know better to come along and talk to us about their games and maybe run an actual play segment to give us an idea of their vision for their game. I've told this story before, I won't bore anyone. Our topics range from old school favourites like RuneQuest through to some of those newfangled narrative games all the cool kids talk about. When you listen, I want you to feel as though you're sitting around our gaming table, taking part in our post-game chat and helping dispose of the last of the crisps and ale. I'll just wax my bowstring and think about the death of the tainted. Oh no, eight, nine, eight. So, if you like listening to people droning on excitedly about games in a range of regional British accents... All Anthrex's Gaming Vexes is the pod for you, and you'll find it on your podcasting app of choice. On occasion, you may even hear something really insightful, but I'm making no promises. Over to you, Dave. Point to Punxies and make it a Titan. <laughs> Keep it high. When you look back over the 50 episodes that we've produced, it's been about our shared experience. It turns out that fighting fantasy as the ultimate lonely fun is something that we don't have in common. I've really enjoyed going back to the game books and discovering the fighting fantasy tabletop game, which I'll definitely use more of as a lightweight game to take to conventions. Thanks to Jonathan for appearing on the show, and I put a link to his page and his pledge manager in the show notes. The interview really helped me understand the history of fighting fantasy. It's been a busy few months here in the den for one reason or another, and the grogzine has slipped deadlines like crazy, but I'm going to use the break between now and virtual grog meet to do the final push. It's not a zine, it's a package, a magazine, a guide to the apocalypse, a collectible game, a thieves world homage, and the collected writings of Daily Dwarf Volume 4. When it gets to the patrons, it's going to be a treat. It'll be ready when it's ready. And when it's ready, I'll let you know. One of my absolute favourite podcasts is The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films and horror gaming in general. And I was honoured to be asked to co-host the show as a stand-in for Matt, who was unwell. Don't worry, he's getting better. 
The episode is coming out soon, and it's about gangsters in Call of Cthulhu. We also watched the extreme cinema classic, Gozu. Click subscribe to make sure you don't miss it. On the topic of gangsters, I watched 10 mob films in October and I've been doing write-ups about them on the grognardfiles.com site. Go and check them out to whet your appetite for the forthcoming GrogPod, all about TSR's 1982 game, Gangbusters. To keep up to date with everything that we're doing and to engage with the Grog Squad community, join the Discord channel by contacting me and I'll send you an invite. Please, if you like what we do, pass it on as a holiday season gift to those who you think will enjoy it. What about those people that you used to play with back in the day? Maybe it's time to reach out, pass on the Grognar files in the hope that long lost friendships can be rekindled and you can finally get payback for that fireball incident in 82. Thanks for listening and thanks for subscribing and if you leave us a tip patreon every month thank you very much i know that it's difficult at the moment with increasing financial pressures coming from all sides so i'm extremely grateful for support that you give or you've given in the past next time the groggies have come around once more and we reflect on the year of 2021 and everything that it brought and left behind If you want to make some nominations or have some observations on the year to share, then please contact me at The Grognard File on Twitter, leave a post on the site or give us a poke on other social media. Do you remember when poking and chucking sheep was a thing on social media? Ah, the days before extreme blocking and performative displays. (sighs) Until then, adios amigos. Yeah.